Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. Just wanted to start this episode by giving a big thank you to everyone who has reached out and given us some feedback. We've been receiving a ton of positive feedback so far, and it's it's really fulfilling to know that these episodes have been really valuable to people. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could leave a review wherever you listen. Those reviews help a ton to make it so that when people search anything related to collapse, that our podcast will show up higher on the list, and therefore more people will get to experience the content. Yeah, it's been really fun to see what people have to say about it. I like this review that I saw on Apple Podcasts. It's from somebody who goes by HaleyZH92. It says, scary but informative. The hosts both are well-spoken wow, and have a calm, knowledgeable presence. I like the interaction between them. And if the goal was to flatter us, then HaleyZH92, you, you did a good job. Well-spoken. A calm, knowledgeable presence. What do you think about that, Corey? Well, that's flattering, but I would probably say that Haley would change her mind if she knew me in person. But in all reality, uh, we really appreciate the reviews. And so if you get the chance, leave us a written review. It'll help a ton. As you guys could probably already tell, um, we're going to be doing this over Zoom again today. Kellen is still finishing out his COVID quarantine. So the audio will still be just a little bit different. But by next week, we should be back to normal. I'll allow Kellen to come back into my house again. It will be an honor. And frankly, it'll be so nice to just see anybody in person. We're going crazy right now. I believe it. 
So Kellen, do you want to go ahead and just maybe give a quick recap of what we talked about last week, and then we'll segue into this week's conversation? Yeah, I'll do my best to recap. I love what you taught me about last time, even though we didn't really get into the specifics of preparing for collapse and being prepared. You did talk about the philosophy and the fact that someone with a more prepper mentality might be waiting for one big disastrous event, right? One big emergency. And they may also have this mentality that everyone will instantly be their enemy and they need to go it alone and and prepare in isolation. Whereas what you talked about is, is more along the lines of collapse won't be one big event. It's going to take time. And what we need to do is be prepared in a way that makes us resilient. And one of the ways to do that is to collaborate more with the people around us, our friends and family members, maybe our neighbors. And the more success we have in building up kind of a little community of preparedness, the more successful we're going to be as times get tougher. Yeah, that was a good summary. And it leads well into what we're going to talk about today, which is, like you said, some of the more, you could call them specifics, like this is still going to be a pretty general conversation, very high level when it comes to preparation. This is not a preparedness podcast. I've had people ask what they can do to prepare. And so I think this is just a good opportunity to give like a very simple, here's some things to think about as you kind of begin down your path of preparedness. And um, obviously, if you want the details, maybe we can go into them more deep later on in, in further episodes, but this could at least just be a quick starting point to get your mind moving on it. So obviously, there's a range of levels of preparation. We kind of mentioned last time that not everyone's going to reach the very highest levels of preparation that preferred sort of ultimate scenario that we discussed last episode. And again, that may be because of constraints on people's time or their money or their energy, or like we talked about, you know, it's just simply not worth it for them to try and survive through a collapse. And we also mentioned that like, maybe if you're like me, part of the struggle is thinking that if you do have that time and money that you want to be spending it doing things with your family and and making memories. So basically enjoying the good times while we still have them. And just again, to mention that I'm not an expert on this topic. I personally haven't done most of the stuff that we're teaching about, but we're all on this journey together. And I think it's important to to start somewhere. So that being said, if you do decide to make preparations, uh, anything is better than nothing. While I haven't made any super large preparation for a full-scale collapse, I am doing little things here and there to try and get myself through some of the tough times along the way. So whether you're wanting to go all in and be one of the few people that can take your children and your grandchildren and their posterity all the way through a collapse, or if you just want to be able to make it through some of the nasty bumps that we'll experience along the way, we're going to try and kind of touch on some of those different levels of preparedness here. And so the first that I think uh, is essential to talk about is sort of the most important thing for sustaining life, and that is water. You know, we all know that you can make it probably not much longer than three days or so without water. So having access quickly is important. And there are two main concerns when it comes to water. So those are that you need to have a source, and uh, you also need a way to filter it. So for a short-term source of water, purchasing and sanitizing a 55-gallon food-grade barrel should give you a couple weeks, depending on your usage and your family size. And these are the ones that, you know, they're about four feet tall, two feet in diameter. And this is important to have for anyone in the case of a natural disaster or a city's water supply becoming contaminated. It's not rare to hear news stories about cities having to shut down water for a time. You could just look at places like Flint, Michigan for a pretty dramatic example, but it wouldn't take a full-on collapse for you to have need for an emergency supply of water. Untreated, water in a capped barrel like that should last around six months. 
And if you're not wanting to change the water out twice a year, you can treat it with bleach or store-bought water purification tablets that will allow it to last much longer. You just have to make sure that uh, you're following the instructions so that you're not poisoning yourself. And that's a good disclaimer for me to throw out here really quick. I am not going to take responsibility for anyone following anything that I say to do or not to do here. So uh, make sure that you follow the instructions on whatever form of you know water purification, whatever it may be that you choose to use. Too late, man. You're legally bound. You have set yourself up for liability. <laughs> Don't drink bleach. All right, moving on. Actually, before you move on, one thing that I would like to say is that as we have been having these conversations over the last few months, I've had to face this question, how, how bad do I think things are going to get and how soon? And I realize there's a whole spectrum, you know, for how extreme things could get and how quickly. But as I thought, like, how do I even just get started being prepared for anything that's going to come? There's so many things I would love to have. I would love to have this huge cushion in my bank account, right? Who wouldn't? I would love to have like some solar powered generators that could keep everything in my house running just fine, even if there was no power. I would love all those things, but the more I thought about it, I thought at least to get started, the thing that really matters is water and then after that, food, right? Like as long as I have water and food, I'm at least covered for the the most important life-sustaining resource. I ordered online a couple of 55-gallon water tanks, and they're a little bit different than the ones that you described. It's kind of nice. They have a spigot on the bottom, so you can just hook up a hose and drain them really easily whenever you need to. But I'll just say even having only that limited amount of preparedness, just having water has given me a lot of peace of mind. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Like I said, there's different levels. And I, you know, this is a $40, if you're buying a brand new barrel, somewhere between $40 and $50. I don't know what you spent for yours, Kellen. I, I paid $45 for mine. And, you know, if you can't dish out 40 or 50 bucks for a, a brand new barrel, I, they sell them used. You want to make sure that you know what it's been used for and that, that it's safe to have water in it. But you can get them for relatively cheap. And to give your family a couple weeks worth of water storage, I think, is... It's a big load off your mind pretty quick. So yeah, great point, Kellen. Water, food, and then I think third would be shelter. Obviously, depending on the time of year, that's going to be way more important than others. But starting with the most important, wherever your biggest gap is, is essential. So if you don't have a little bit of water storage, then make an effort to, to get some. For longer term needs, though, if we're not talking about a short-term disaster or you know, if, if the water went away and wasn't going to come back when I turned on my faucet then there are other options for water sources. So, you know, you might instantly think of things like streams and rivers and ponds and lakes. You can set up rainwater catchment, which is basically where you collect rainwater off of your roof or, you know, on a big tarp or something like that. Melting down snow in the winter is, a, is an obvious option. And perhaps the best option is if you live on a property with water rights over an aquifer with a well. And if you really want to save up a while, you could consider something like buying a water generator, which can create filtered drinkable water out of the humidity in the air. It's kind of these cool machines that will actually seemingly make water out of nothing, but they're just they're pulling it from the air. And obviously you'd need a bit of solar powered energy to run it if the grid's down. Um, and the same goes for your pumps if you're on a well too. But once you have a source of water, you have to be extremely careful because even now, Contaminated water causes nearly 10% of all deaths globally every year through waterborne diseases like malaria, cholera, dysentery, stuff like that. So making sure that your water is clean is hugely important. We kind of take that for granted living in cities with filtered water or whatever. 
Um, but in like a grid down situation where water is no longer flowing to the taps, the rivers and streams and ponds and lakes are going to quickly become contaminated as people upstream start using them for things like bathing or going to the bathroom or washing their clothes and dishes. And those sources of water can even be contaminated by things like corpses of animals and people if stuff is bad enough. And so, you know, that's, that's besides all the other bacteria and minerals that can already be found there. Things like rainwater catchment off your roof is going to have all the fun chemicals and such that your shingles contain, along with the bird feces and any debris that's collected in your rain gutters. So you need a, you need a way to be able to filter this water to make it safe to drink. And so there's a couple options. You know, there are fancy ways to build your own water filters if you're on a budget. You can boil it, helps get rid of the bacteria. Uh, that doesn't get rid of a lot of the chemicals. And you can also purchase filters. For a short-term sort of on-the-go solution, they make things like the uh, the life straw, which is basically just allows you to put one end in the water and then suck through the straw, and that will actually filter it for you. But for longer term or for higher quantities of water, I've heard that um, Berkey filters are really great. I've never used one. It's just a name that I see thrown around a lot. It's a carbon filter. They're kind of pricey. Um, they range between 250 and 750 bucks, depending on the size and the number of filters. But that'll give you five to 20 years of filtering capability. So that being said, you know, for 40 bucks, you can have a couple weeks of water on hand. But for anywhere between 250 and 750, you could have five to 20 years of long-term clean water filtering capability as well. So when it comes to the specifics about how to treat your water, how much water you should be storing, you know, it, it'll just take you 10 seconds to do a quick Google search to find answers to that. So I'm not going to go into detail about that here, especially with the amount of time that we have. But number one priority, just make sure you have a short-term supply of water and then focus on what you would do if you needed a longer-term supply. Okay, so when it comes to food, I think everyone should absolutely have a good supply saved up. You know, with catabolic collapse, there will be periods of food insecurity and then eventually no access to stores or restaurants at all. And if we're being honest, collapse is going to impact the poor first and hardest. So food prices will simply increase in times of scarcity before potentially stabilizing a while, before maybe increasing again and then disappearing eventually to never come back. So while the wealthy might be able to afford it for a while, the poor or even middle class will be the ones going without first. So having a supply of food on hand is a great insurance policy for getting through the downtimes. We talked about the prepper mentality of like, once the food's gone, day one, it's gone forever, we're never going to see it again. But I think we're going to go through a lot more dynamic periods than that. I think there will be times where the grocery stores have some food in it, but not much. And the food that is there is like your very basic, here's, we got bread and maybe we have some milk. And even those will be very expensive. And so you need to be able to have some, you know, some of the other necessities or, you know, maybe it'll be that way for a while before we'll hit a period of stability and, and a good majority of food comes back again and another chance to get ahead, but then it's going to be bad again. So you just never know, but I don't think it's just going to be one day there's restaurants and the next day it's all gone. On that note, it makes me think about what has taken place locally with the pandemic when it first hit, you know, everyone jokes about the fact that toilet paper was out of stock for weeks. But even that first week when everyone kind of panicked, the grocery store shelves got totally cleared. And my wife and I went to try and find some things. And the only items that were left were just really random bits here and there. Like, sure, there was plenty of salad dressing, but there wasn't any bread or milk or... Salad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, salad. And there were certain seasonings and maybe we could find a can of olives here 
and a can of tuna here. But now the grocery store shelves are full again. And I think you're right, as things kind of hit bumps along the way during a gradual decline, we would see moments where it seems like everything is fine and moments where things are really scarce. And those moments where things are scarce would probably become more and more frequent. And like you said, the cost of food would go up. Yeah. And you think about the situation we're in right now. We've got all these people who are not paying their rent or who are not paying their mortgage and who are saved only by the moratorium that's currently in place on evictions. But they face here pretty quick. The day after Christmas, the moratorium is set to end for most. And so if that's not extended, which hopefully it will be, but at some point, something has to give. And so you have a lot of people who are struggling to pay because they've lost their job. So if you're a person who's lost your job, even though there's food on the on the shelves, doesn't mean that you have money to buy it. You know, maybe you could stay in your home if you didn't have to pay to buy groceries. And so having a store of food ready would help you in that situation. So again, having food storage is not just for like this complete collapse, epic fail scenario. A lot of people could benefit from having that um, at all times. So it's important to have a mix of foods as well, like both foods that you eat every day, as well as more of a long-term storage that can last the 20 to 30 years. You know, a good goal would be to have probably something like three or so months of your just everyday food, and then if possible, around a year's worth of the long-term food, at least. And that's not an easy thing to do. I'm not there, but I think there are ways to start small. So the everyday food, for example, doesn't have to be bought all at once. If you're on a budget, you can start simple by adding an extra of something each time you go to the store. So if I run to Sam's Club and spend 120 bucks on groceries for a, a couple weeks, you know, I'll try and add in one extra of something I'm buying that day and usually something with an expiration date of at least a year or two. That way I know that I'll eat it in that time. So yeah, my grocery cost went up from 120 to 130 that trip, but I now have an extra box of something like a, like granola bars or something like that, that I know I'm going to eat and I'll cycle through them. So as soon as I eat that first box of granola bars, I can go to the store and replace it before opening the second box. So I've always got that one extra. If you multiply that and do it over time, or if you can afford to do a little more at once, it won't take too long until you have a two or three month supply of food that you commonly eat. And the reason it's important to have food that you commonly eat is because if you buy a bunch of pails of like powdered, dry, frozen, or dehydrated food, it's hard. You don't really have the motivation to crack that open. You're more likely to spend money getting what you're used to eating when that money that you're spending could be more easily spent on paying your rent or whatever. So having normal food that you're used to eating will help you um, kind of ease you into eating through food storage instead of spending the money on it when you shouldn't be. Yeah, I know that sometimes when people think of food storage, they think I'm going to go get a bunch of like cracked wheat and have have a 50 pound bag of cracked wheat. But most of us have no idea how to make something with cracked wheat. We know how to make something with like refined flour. And many of us don't know how to even do that. <laughs> right. But I love the advice that you need to build up a storage of things that you normally eat. And I'll just make a little plug here. You know, my little family, we've got some food allergy issues. And going back to the example of when the panic over the pandemic hit, we wanted to go get some milk. The dairy shelves were all empty. And the only alternative for us is rice milk because there's allergies against soy. There's allergies against nuts and like almond milk. And so for anybody that has any sort of dietary restrictions, 
or like food allergies, it made me realize it's just that much more important and that much more urgent to to get food storage of the things that you can consume. Yep, exactly. And I think, you know, things like the crack wheat and those types of, you know, big bags of rice and all that, I think those things are important. And those are really good for long-term food storage if you know how to store them correctly. It's just that you need to learn how to use it. Start learning now how to incorporate those into your regular diet. If you don't know how to cook with flour, learn how to cook with flour, you know, learn how to convert wheat into flour and all that sort of stuff so that you can spend the least amount of money on the most amount of food in the long run. You shouldn't have to be buying, you know, really expensive pails of food from August and farms if you know how to prepare food in in other ways. With that being said, if you do have money and you don't want to learn how to cook all these complicated meals or whatever, then yeah, you can go out and buy pails of food storage that's been, um, you know, it's powders and you just add water and those things will last you 30 years and they're really convenient and they're nice to be out there watertight. You can just throw them in your storage room or whatever and that's that, but you're going to be dishing out, you know, 120 bucks or something like that, a pail, which is more than I want to spend. But they do provide a good amount of calories and they're they're a great resource if you have the money for it. So with all your food storage, a lot of people look at it like, like it's such a big investment and it's a waste of money. And in reality, if somehow we got to 2040 or 2050 without ever needing it and it was set to expire, well, that's a gear that you don't have to go shopping if you don't want to, right? You can eat that food and if you feel the need, which you probably should with the direction things are headed, you would replace it at that time. But it doesn't have to cost any more in the long run, it's just about coming up with uh, with the ability to do it in the short run. And so, again, it doesn't have to be done all at once. You're not going on one shopping spree where you're going to buy a few thousand dollars worth of food. Spread it out over the course of uh, you know the next year or whatever, and before you know it, you'll have a good storage setup. Now, like we talked about last episode, food storage is not enough to get you through a collapse. If you do end up with a year's worth of food storage, you're going to have a huge leg up on the majority of people who will likely be going without. Um, You know, malnutrition is a huge issue in the world today, and it's going to be a huge issue as collapse progresses because people don't often just die of starvation. But as you become malnourished, you're much more susceptible to diseases, viruses, which I'm sure we'll see an increase of, and those types of things. Your immune system isn't as strong to take care of them. So So having some food to get you through the tough times is hugely important. But once food is gone for good, if all you've got is food storage, you're going to bust through those rations and then be left with nothing still. So the next part is the really hard part, but the part that I believe will set apart survivors of collapse from fatalities. And you have to spend the time to learn to garden well or to be really good friends with someone that can. We mentioned last episode, and I'll say it again, you can't really grow enough food to feed yourself from your third-story balcony in downtown LA. Living in a city makes resilience really tough. So best thing you can do in the long term is, is find your way to somewhere more rural. But that being said, just because you do live in a rural or a semi-rural area doesn't mean that you can just start to grow food on your first try. And I'm not even going to try to teach you how to garden because I don't know how. As I mentioned, I'm not anywhere where I need to be in all this. So I would actually love to learn to garden. And it's my goal this year. um, I plan on at least trying to learn some basic fundamentals of it in the little 12 foot by 12 foot garden plot I have outside. I'm going to spend the winter reading some books and learning up on it, giving it a little shot here this next spring. I'm sure that I will royally mess it up, that I'm going to have to put years of practice and learning uh, in order to have access to you know a bigger garden space and being good enough to actually um, yield enough food from it. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And I'll just say along those lines, in a previous episode, we talked about if things really get bad, if suddenly there is a panic or there is an economic downturn or there is anything that's going to lead to a time of crisis, at that moment, the chances of you being able to go find the tools you need to garden and the seed and the fertilizer and whatever else is pretty low. Those things are going to be cleared out of stock immediately by all the other people who have the same idea. So I love the idea of starting now, getting in the habit, getting the tools you need, preparing the little spot of land in your yard, you know, having some fertilizer on hand or having some extra seed, whatever it is, it seems like beyond just having the knowledge and the skill to garden, having kind of your own little infrastructure to make it happen and the supplies is equally important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think gaining the knowledge of it is tough in and of itself. But you know, me spending the winter learning about it isn't going to do me any good if come springtime, I can't get any of the things that I need to make it happen. As a matter of fact, during coronavirus here locally, I did hear that people were really struggling to get seeds. They were they were gone. All of the specialty seed places around town and everything like nobody had any because everyone was freaking out wanting to plant their own gardens. And so there's positives and negatives to that because the more that people find that desire to start their own gardens and, and become more resilient themselves, like obviously that's great because your community is becoming more resilient. You just don't want to be the one left out of that by not having what it takes to, to get started. So yeah, in the end, don't make the mistake of thinking that once we're in a collapse situation that you'll just plant a couple seeds, throw on some water, and voila, you have food to survive. That's not how it's going to work. It's going to take a lot of investment on uh, our part, all of our parts, to learn, to gain that knowledge, and to gain the experience in it. So even then, once you've learned to garden, being able to grow a successful garden doesn't mean that you can survive year-round on the food that it produces alone. Or that in the pits of collapse when things are just at the absolute worst and people are probably out scavenging a bit for food that you'd be able to protect it. So the best success in all of this will come from those who have taken the time to establish those solid relationships with their neighbors and their community and helping that community to become resilient. So when you increase the number of gardens and you increase the amount of skill and expertise in different areas, that's when you succeed. You know, you might know how to pair an engine and your neighbor on one side might be an electrician that could say troubleshoot solar panels. And the neighbor on your right might be, you know, a nurse that knows first aid and the gal across the street maybe was in the military and an expert marksman. All of you rely on each other's skills. And so when your garden or crops fail, if you've built the proper relationships, you should be all right. 
you know, in a community that has made an effort to become resilient, then when my yield is terrible one year, you know, my neighbor may be willing to share, or I may have a skill or an asset or something that I can trade or barter. But at least, like we talked about last episode, I haven't made myself this ostracized enemy of my neighbor. We can we can help each other out. Yeah, I love that you say that. And it makes me think of what we talked about last time. It seems like such a tall order to create a community of preparedness and resilience. But just taking the effort to establish some relationships with the people around you and build some trust. You know, we talked about the example last time of knocking on your neighbor's door and saying, hey, I know everyone's out of toilet paper. I've got some extra. Here you go. By the way, I could use a little bit of sugar. Do you have any extra? Great, thanks. That one little transaction and that one little moment of trust means that you each now have a resource that you can go to to collaborate and support each other the next time things get rough. Absolutely. And honestly, this this whole idea of getting your neighbors on the same page as you and everything, again, may seem very unrealistic. And for some people, it honestly might be. You might have that neighbor who does not want to talk to you, who doesn't want to know anything about you, who, who would call you crazy if you ever talked anything you know, about preparation or anything like that. And so this may be unrealistic for some people. But as we stated last episode, surviving collapse is relatively unrealistic. So if you want to survive, put yourself into the situation that we're talking about, whatever that means, whether that means finding new neighbors, leaving, going somewhere else, making your own neighbors, inviting your friends and family, the, the chances of you accomplishing this maybe aren't great, but the chances of surviving collapse are also not great <laughs> in the long run. On the short term, yes, with basic food storage and that type of thing that we talked about, you can get through that. But a full on scale collapse, you're going to have to go out of your way to put yourself in a good situation to be that level of prepared. Okay, so moving on, when it comes to something like shelter, there's not a ton to say from a really high level. I mean, my biggest concern is the timescale that collapse will work on. So the possibility of losing my home along the way. It seems like if everybody lost their house at once, the government probably isn't going to just kick every single person out. That would be pointless on their part because banks have no one to sell the foreclosed homes to. So they're likely to just let people stay in those homes in an emergency like that. The bigger worry for me is that it'll happen slower than that over time. So like we talked about, there are millions of Americans threatened with homelessness right now because they're six months or more behind now on their mortgages or their rent. So with the moratorium and all that possibly being lifted, this idea is real for a lot of people right now. And the fear that I have for my family and myself is that at some point in the future, I may lose my job and my ability to pay my mortgage. So the only real way to solve that is to actually own where you live. If you have a loan or if you're renting, then someone else has the right to take it from you. So if collapse is a slow burn and it turns into this wealth being consolidated amongst the ultra rich, then more and more people are going to be kicked out of their homes. And when I say the wealth being consolidated by the rich, we're talking about maybe like a ma and pa type landlord who only has like five units right? But who loses his homes because his renters aren't paying. And that allows for like some mega corporation to come in and, and buy up their units for super cheap. And that's how that wealth gets converted. And so we lose the middle class. You get either really poor people or really wealthy people. Okay. But owning your home outright is a fantasy for most people, especially on a short time scale. Um, if I pay my mortgage until like 2050, then great, I can own my property. But it's probably going to be too late by then. So if you're someone who is really serious about this, 
tiny homes can be a great option, especially if you can do some of the work yourself. They're so cost efficient, you know, you're able to increase the likelihood that you can own it yourself in a much quicker time frame. So again, that's like a huge like lifestyle change for most people. They're used to their maybe six bed, three bath, or, you know, you're used to just renting and kind of bouncing around from house to house every once in a while. But tiny homes, they do have a lot of benefits and there are a lot of pros that go along with it as well. So for example, you know, they encourage a minimalist lifestyle. A smaller space is easier to heat, whether that's through a wood-burning stove or if you're running on solar. And that takes us to the next point, which is that from a comfort level, um, especially transitioning through the ups and downs of deindustrialization and catabolic collapse, a small off-grid home powered by solar is just about as comfortable as it gets. You know, if people are gradually u- losing their utilities or utilities are coming and going and things like that, I've seen these off grid homes with electric heating and cooling. There's composting toilets, water storage tanks, basically everything that you'd need to be completely disconnected from the grid. And, you know, at a cost of a third of what you might pay for a regular priced home or much less, honestly, depending on where you live. I've seen some people that will build these types of off-grid tiny homes for like eighty to $100,000. So while I still know that that's not realistic for a lot of people, I think if you take collapse seriously and you're really serious about the preparations that you want to do, it's a, it's a real option. And it's one that could actually have a lot of benefits for you in your, in your normal life, even if you know, collapse doesn't happen imminently. Yeah. And as you say that, I think about my home and I realize there are so many complex systems that I rely on just to continue to live in my home, like the electricity and the plumbing, you know, the water supply, the natural gas. In a way, being in a tiny home kind of sounds nice. It sounds more appealing because there's not all of that complexity. Yeah. You know, my in-laws, their house just flooded for like the fourth time since they've lived there. And my parents' house has flooded multiple times. I'm not talking like feet of water, but you know, enough to destroy the carpet, to destroy some walls, to require opening of walls, to fix pipes, all these things that happen in a larger, more complicated home. So even if we're not talking about going to the extreme of buying a tiny home that's off grid or something like that, just trying to live simple and within your means as much as possible. You don't have to buy the biggest house that you can afford just because that's what your neighbors are doing. If you're thinking in the long term, simpler is always more manageable. Yeah, and this may be a little bit of a tangent from what we're talking about with homes, but I think that brings up a really good point about just being resilient financially, right? We've discussed the fact that most of us, most people are living right on the edge of their budget. They're only making enough each month to cover their expenses and to make their debt payments. And knowing that there are tough times ahead, there's a lot more peace of mind and having a little bit of cushion there and maybe having a little bit of savings set aside or keeping your expenses low enough that you're not going to be immediately in crisis as soon as something bad comes along. And one other thing that came to mind as you were saying all of this, I love that you talked about it really depends on your situation, right? You haven't been prescriptive at all. What you've said is, hey, here's the ideal. But if you can't do that, you can at least do this. And if you can't do that, maybe just start with this, right? Kind of a good, better, best. And I personally am not at a point that I want to buy a tiny home, but maybe I could start with a decent tent and some warm sleeping bags. And maybe I could make a plan, you know, with with my in-laws or with another family member who lives close by to say, hey, 
if anything ever comes up, just know that you can stay here and hopefully you do the same for me, right? Just to have kind of a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. I think that kind of redundancy just compounds how prepared you're going to feel. Yeah, absolutely. And because, like we've said, you never know how collapse is going to play out over what sort of time scale, what kind of severity, um, it's it's important to kind of role play in your mind each each scenario. And what would my solution be in this scenario? What's the best case I can do in this scenario? And like we've talked about, picking the most important gaps uh, in that plan and doing little steps that you can to fill it. And like you said, based on your circumstance, you might have to fill it in a good way, but maybe you could do it in a better or a best way, depending on your circumstances. So one thing to consider is that, you know, I mentioned in the beginning stages of collapse as things are come and go and maybe we're just going through these serious depressions, but there's still access to basic necessities of life and maybe there's still like law enforcement in place, you know, security, that type of thing. But once that starts to go away, you know, if you get to a point where you don't have a 911 to dial you're kind of on your own and things are bad enough that people are willing to harm each other for their stuff and things like that. A major con to consider if you are on like an off-grid sort of tiny home or anything like that, if you've bought a bunch of solar panels and you think that's going to get you through collapse, you just have to realize that the targets are going to be the people who have their lights on (laughs) because nobody else does. If someone's out starving and freezing in winter or whatever, and they're willing to do whatever they have to do to, to get warm and get food and water for their family, and they see your lights are on, then you're going to be the one with a, a target on your back. So that's mostly to say that while the, the gizmos and gadgets are good to kind of get you through that transition phase of collapse, they're probably not the best things to have once we really get into the thick of it. At that point, you're probably better off kind of suffering down at the level of, of everyone else. And maybe the time scale of this is long enough and drawn out enough that that won't ever be an issue. You could survive on the 20 years that your solar panels would last you or whatever and be fine. Um, But it's just something to keep in mind that having all of that may not always be the best or the safest option. So that takes us to the, uh, the next idea of protecting yourself. When it comes to things like firearms, I am personally by no means a hoarder of weapons or ammunition. That's a really expensive hobby that I can't afford. But I do own a shotgun, a rifle, and a handgun, and I've trained myself on how to use them well. And you know, some people just like to keep these massive amounts of ammunition on hand, and they've got like 100 guns. They plan on f- either fighting a war with it you know, all on their own, or they plan to use, kind of like we talked about last episode, use that ammunition as a currency if the dollar ever stops having value. And I think that you know, ammunition weapons will have a lot of value. I personally don't want to hoard them because just like the wealthy will sort of have a target on their back, if ammo becomes a source of wealth, then that target again shifts to you once you're out trading it. So uh, likewise, I will defend myself and my family, whatever it takes. I've got enough ammunition that I could do that. But you won't catch me out like murdering people for their stuff. And again, frankly, it's sad that some people think that that is going to be an acceptable thing to do. So anyway, I I do think it's important to learn how to defend yourself, whether that be with firearms or if you're a person who does not trust yourself with firearms. I've seen a lot of people in the subreddit who say that, like, because of my mental health, it's probably best that I don't own a firearm. That's a very mature thing to know and be able to accept. So there are other ways that you can learn self-defense and other things that you can do to to prepare yourself in in that way. Whatever it is, I do recommend taking some sort of action to further your preparedness on the self-defense level. 
everything that you're saying is within the context of collapse. And you convince me through all the episodes that we've had so far, it seems very evident to me that we are going to experience collapse. But I just keep thinking, even if it were not going to happen in our lifetimes, or if something miraculous were to come along that would prevent collapse, all of these are fantastic principles anyways, right? Like having some food and water on hand, being able to defend yourself and your family if needed, being resilient against any sort of hard times, like no matter where you live, there are probably occasionally some sort of natural disasters that take place. You're going to experience hurricanes or earthquakes or fires or floods. And we know that with climate change, we're all going to experience a lot more of that. We know that the economic system is set up to fail sooner or later, and that a lot of the choices made by government leaders and just the place that capitalism has taken us anyways, makes it so the likelihood of you losing your job at some point in your life or of getting hit with some sort of a medical emergency or something else that's going to take a big chunk of your finances. Like these are all things that are just practical for life. So if if they are things that we all should be doing anyways, just because life happens, for anyone who's collapsed aware, it seems like there is that much more urgency, right? There's that much more importance in getting all of this in place. Awesome point. I 100% agree. You know, I felt a lot more urgency recently to just get the basics in place for myself because looking around at the current situation because of coronavirus and, and this coronavirus is a symptom, it's not the cause of this mess that we're in. We were due for an, for economic troubles anyway, but the coronavirus has kind of cemented that and exacerbated it. And so now we're in a spot economically that I think is really fragile. And Kellen, you and I have had these conversations personally, just that I don't see how we're going to get out of this easily. I think it gets worse before it gets better. And so being in this moment right now, and I'm thinking, if I lose my job in the next few months, or if the economy just takes a huge downturn, and um, we have supply chain problems for a while, or whatever, where am I on my level of preparedness? You know, it stresses me out because I'm, I know I'm not where I need to be and, and I'm not in a place where I can just get myself where I need to be. But the little things that I can do do help me to feel better about that. And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. If there are things that we should be doing anyway, being collapse aware really should increase our urgency and make us want to really get on it. So to finish off the podcast, we're, we're about at time here. So I'm going to just breeze through the last of these uh, few things. But um, there are a few random items to think about that may not be obvious if you're new to the preparation idea. So things like a decent stock of necessary medications, if possible, as well as things like contraceptives. That's not something you would normally think of, but I, I don't know about you. If I was in the middle of trying to survive like a collapse scenario, trying to figure out how to deliver a healthy pregnancy and raise a child in a world with no diapers and formula and things like that would be scary. And during coronavirus, diapers and wipes and formula were all really hard to come by. I didn't have kids that I needed them for, but I saw people on like Facebook pages and stuff begging for those things because they didn't have any for their kids and there was none that they could find at the store. So yeah, you just want to make sure that you've, you've got those things in place. Medications, obviously, like there are so many people that rely on medications for high blood pressure or diabetes or, I mean, there's just a whole range of things. If, if you don't have those medications on hand and you rely on them, it's going to be trouble, especially things like you know mental illnesses 
if you rely on any sort of medication, you know, for depression or bipolar or anything like that, going off of those things and going off of them unexpectedly um, is is a problem. And you can imagine a society where a large number of people do go off of those uh, all at once could intensify things as well. So keeping those stocked up. Another big one is keeping up on your physical fitness. So there's not going to be any doctors around. And even if there are, they're not going to be able to prescribe you any medications that you might need as you age. So just keeping up on your physical fitness as you grow older um, helps make sure that you can be more independent in that way. Along with that, if you've ever had a toothache, you know how awful that is and how the only relief that you get is when you go to the dentist and they give you you know, a numbing shot and fix the tooth or take out the tooth or whatever it is they need to do. I can't imagine not having that resource and having those problems. And if we lost access to dentists, you want to make sure that your your dental health is in good of a shape as it can be. Because while a toothache right now might not sound that bad, I, I guarantee you that could be a, a serious source of problems um, if you can't fix it. Um, okay. And so, yeah, just lastly, things like, um, you know, what are you going to do with your garbage if someone's not coming to collect it? Where are you going to go to the bathroom if you can't flush your toilet? Do you know how to dig a latrine or, um, you know, make a makeshift toilet or anything like that? Having basic knowledge of first aid and, you know, being able to treat a wound. You know, they talk about how a, a huge cause of death if we were to lose access to medicines and hospitals and stuff would just be simple infections from pretty basic injuries. And so knowing how to disinfect and, and treat a wound properly, and then for more serious things like bone breaks and things like that, if you don't have a doctor or an ER that you can go to, do you know how to do basic treatments for those things to help someone stay alive or yourself stay alive if necessary? So that's that's a whole bunch of really random things. Each one of them could present you know their own episodes. And there are other podcasts out there that focus solely on this stuff where you can go and and learn about them. And this brings us full circle to the one of the first things that I said uh, in the last episode about the whole prepper mentality and how if you go on like a prepper forum, you're going to learn how to eat pine cones and you're going to learn what to do with trash bags. I think that those things are helpful, but the things that we've talked about today that preserve your life, the things that you can really focus on putting in place now are miles ahead of that. So get the basics and then as you feel more and more prepared, then go and learn how to eat pine cones. <laughs> um, you know, silly things like that. But anyway, I, I know this hasn't been super detailed, but I hope that at the very least it gets your mind working in a way that, that allows you to think, what, where's my biggest vulnerability? How can I get started? You know, as I hear all this, I have to just keep myself from getting overwhelmed because I feel like every moment of every day could be dedicated to making myself more prepared for collapse. And if I really wanted to be as prepared as possible, it would take that much time and energy and resources. But I do appreciate knowing the different levels of preparedness and at least identifying a few ways I can start small. And even if I can't prevent all future suffering for myself and my family, every little step that I take today will hopefully make life that much better tomorrow. Yep, that's spot on. And not only that, but even the little things help you to sleep better at night, right? Like I I buy an extra box of macaroni and cheese and I'm like, okay, like there's one more meal that I could provide if needed. It's not a big step. It didn't take a lot of time or a lot of money, but I'm actively trying. And I think, again, that's part of, like we talked about, the whole coping mechanism of it, of just feeling like it's just little things that I have within my control that, while yes, may not change the world for me, I know that I'm doing something and that that something is better than nothing. 
And so just as a reminder uh, to those who maybe are new to the podcast, the first several episodes that we went through were kind of Collapse 101. Um, we're getting more into the sort of Collapse 201 at this point. And as we continue to talk, we're going to both broaden the scope of what we talk about, but we're also going to be digging in a lot deeper about the things that we're talking about. So when it comes to things like preparedness, we can do future episodes on specifics, you know, how to treat your water or specific recipes for foods that last a long time, things like that, you know, how to dig a proper latrine. If that is something that does interest you, you know, we'd like to know and like to hear. As we collect your feedback, we know more and more what types of things to focus on that you guys want to hear about. So please feel free to reach out, say, yeah, we're interested in that. No, we're not really interested in that. Keep it just to collapse and and away from the preparedness side. Either way, you know, we want to make sure that we're including what is interesting to, to the listeners. You can reach out to me on Reddit. I'm user Corey John, K-O-R-Y-J-O-N. You can reach us on Twitter at CollapsePod, or you can also send us an email to breakingdowncollapse at gmail.com. That email does not include the colon that you see in our title. Thanks and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.